Hello there. You're listening to Sasitup podcast by Sashwath and Oscar where you speak with startup founders, venture capitalists and some of the leading talents in the world. We listen to their personal journeys and share their stories that shape their world view. JB Daguin is an entrepreneur turned investor and is a partner of 70 Ventures, which is a fund as well as a revenue accelerator for B2B startups. primarily backing ambitious founders in the pre-seed as well as series A stage in the Baltics and Nordic ecosystem. Welcome to our show JB. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question would be that you are from Lithuania, you are in uh, are you currently in Vilnius JB? Yeah, I'm currently in Vilnius and I'm actually I'm I'm French originally, uh, but I've been living outside of France for the past 12 years and in Vilnius for for 8 years, yeah. And how does your investments in the Baltics and Nordic ecosystem started off? you were a, a sales veteran and thereafter you moved to entrepreneurship ecosystem how did the path actually took that pivot yeah it's a very good question so basically yeah i fell in love with the b2b saas model back when i used to work in copenhagen with a company called trust pilot you might have heard about them they went public as in 4 weeks ago in london so basically learn how to you know build a cash sales machine where we went from 4 to 150 sales people in just 2 years and from 50 to 5000 customers and i brought 600 customers myself in that journey in just 2 years i was highly motivated for a simple reason i went bankrupt with my previous startup and trustpilot had a no cap on commissions so i could pay back my debts much faster than it was initially planned but we also had a very you know relevant product that creates a lot of value and then when i became debt free i moved to lithuania to vilnius so that was 8 years ago the startup ecosystem was not yet as mature as it is today and i worked with the first vc in town called practica capital they're still around and now they are more like the stage across the baltics and uh, my job was to help the portfolio to go to market so i was just doing always the same putting founders in front of customers by documenting their common sense and basically basically uh, specializing a team to research and to book meetings with prospects and then eventually that team became my company we grew it to 70 people now we We mainly work with scale-ups and post-series A companies, helping them to make their sales funnel more predictable. But I was also doing go-to-market consulting because that's really the part of this other startup journey that turns me on. But to be honest, go-to-market consulting is a terrible business because when it doesn't work, you are part of the problem. You are the bad consultant, no matter the reason it didn't work, right? And then when it works, everybody is really, really happy. but realistically speaking you created way more value than your invoice and that's so you know the idea came that i should not invoice startup i should invest in them so they can afford to go to market and i should also take equity for the sweat we put when we go to market and that was the initial idea of 70v so i partner up with two other guys pair and gitanis and we basically raise 8 million euros and we invest a very small tickets just to fund the go to market for so 50000 euro and then we set revenue milestone to reach so those are mrr revenue milestone and if they reach them then we invest up to 200000 euro on the top so we have done this for the past 2 years we have almost 40 investments we are about 37 or 38 at the moment we have six startups that already have a few millions in revenue and we actually had our first exit profitable exit in january this year that is nice yeah. Yeah, that felt nice. <laughs> and is it safe to assume that you are a strong salesman in the core as well because you have exposure in the sales spectrum and you enjoy GTM, yeah. you enjoy Yeah. No, no, for sure. I mean, we 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 are we are like our due diligence are very different I think from many other VCs. One part of our due diligence is called sales DNA. 
And the other part of the sales region of our due diligence is called customer-centric DNA. When we invest in early stage founders, we really want to make sure that if we put together a, a playbook to help them go to market and we this playbook needs to generate meetings. We want to make sure that they will have this customer-centric DNA so they will deliver something that works in terms of the value they create, but also that they have the sales DNA, right? That they know how to close when there is a fit, basically. So yeah, definitely strong, strong sales approach in how we invest and work with startups. And of course, sales is the most important skill for an entrepreneur, especially when someone is an early stage founder, they would have to get more meetings with VCs, more meetings with prospective customers, etc. Yeah. In your experience, right, could you give one or two examples where you really loved one of the experiences of your founders when you just met them for like first or the second meeting, you could actually find the sales DNA in them? Oh, that's a very, very good question. And Unfortunately, um, our job is also a funnel. I don't remember, but we did the, the maths and we need to look at, I don't know how many thousands of decks to just have a meetings on the assumptions that this is a potential good fit for us. And then most of the meetings will not end up as well as a fit, right? So it's very, very rare when we have this kind of, let's say, uh, romance at first glance, right? <laughs> uh, with, with the, with the founders. But I think what we like to see is just the best startups are often not fundraising. They are just head down talking to customer every day and just delivering and building a great company, a great business, right? And I think that's where we have great connection from day one because we are aligned on, on the simple principle that you better get money from your customers than investors because they actually give you money and you they don't take equity for it, right? So eventually you can keep on growing your business and the investors will come to you. So I guess that's when we have uh, this really nice, strong connection from the beginning when we meet founders like this. Right. So JB, let's talk about your first business idea. You yeah. already covered it a little bit. And by the way, I really liked your talk at Fail Nights where you elaborate more about that. Your first business idea was in the bicycle business, the bicycle industry, right? Basically, your idea was in Copenhagen, there are these fixie bikes and these fixie bikes are super expensive. And your idea was to sell those fixie bikes at a cheaper price. And back in the day, you were talking to many investors. What I would like to know is what was the best advice you got from an investor back in the days? Oh, yeah. Really, really good one. Uh, get a technical co-founder. And that's it. We were just two business guys trying to build a website with an outsource agency in Thailand that were just saying yes to everything we ask and sending us new invoices. And we just had no clue how to build an e-commerce website. But we just thought that if we do uh, specs on PowerPoint without any idea of any backend, this should work, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, of course it didn't work. So, and, and I remember like the guys, it was a startup bootcamp, I think, like really like one of the first accelerators in Europe. And they were like, yeah, great idea, great metrics. Everything on the operation side looks logic, but you need a technical co-founder. I'm like, okay, I didn't listen to the advice and, and went bankrupt. Yeah. You're a, like an investor yourself now. Is this something you look for in a founder team that you have like different perspective, different founders from different backgrounds? No, no, of course. I mean, hundred percent. Like they need to, uh, you know, to add value to each other, to have different set of skills. And I think that the worst situation is to be in a room where everybody agrees with each other. I don't think you will go very far that way, right? So that's also what I like with the partnership I have with my two other founders. We are three dudes, but I think we're still very diverse in a way. The other partner is Danish. Has worked for EY for twenty-five years. Have been business angel CEO of some large companies. My other partners come from the banking and investment side, we set up the business central network here in Lithuania, and I'm the sales guy, right? So we always look at things from different perspectives and 
in a way we are specialized in our own area as well and i think that's the same we are looking in any other team right and and solo founders solo founders are often red flag even though there are some exceptions and, and we have exceptions but most of the time solo founders is, is a red flag oh that's interesting what would you recommend a solo founder would you like recommend those to get like more people in there maybe like advisors what would you recommend those solo founders Yeah, yeah. So really, it depends which founders you have, right? So at the stage that we are looking, and we only do B 2 B SaaS on a bit of marketplace, but it's like 80 80% B 2 B SaaS or B 2 B, right? Let's say we don't only have SaaS; we also mostly so B 2 B, right? So we talk to either the business or the technical co-founder. So it's you know these two ways, right? And then when you are early stage, technical also means product most of the time, and business is sales and marketing. So what we did back in the days. We didn't do this virtually yet, but back in the days, we used to do some matchmaking events, which was really fun, where people had, uh, you know, like a badge uh, at the event and they're, what they're looking for. So they're looking for a job, they're looking for a co-founder, they're looking for investors. We did that event for one of the founders in our portfolio that was looking for a technical co-founder and it actually worked. And also from the very beginning, she, she was open and saying, I know I'm a solo founder and I have... Um, room for another founder it has to be technical i'm working with an outsource agency and i know that i don't have the skills to manage the development and i want technical co-founder to come and take over that role so you know because i think she was mature enough to appreciate that and, and to be open about this we, we still moved on with investment and did our best to help her found a co-founder with that event I think one of the trends that I've seen is that in especially when there are few business folks, you know, building a company, right? Assuming there are two or three business folks and they don't have a technical co-founder in the initial days, then of course, you know, they follow the trick that you had in your early days as well. They find yeah. their outsource agency, they, you know, they get the MVP built these days with a, you know, no code tool, they build something up. Yeah. And once it scales up, then finally, you know, they look for investments and then they hire a technical co-founder as well. So that's one of the trends that I've been seeing. So my question, um, uh, JB, is that you are a sales veteran and you would have seen teams from all the phases, right? Early stage teams, which are like zero to one teams, right? The scale-up teams are like one to 10 and uh, the growth stage or mature startups are like 10 to 1000 or 10 to 100 kind of teams. So what challenge do you see when implementing a sales workflow across all these phases? Because obviously these are different skill sets that you would be requiring. Yeah, so very, very good question. It's true, like the challenges that they see at those different stages are very different. And also it really depends on how you position yourself. So I work with SaaS or B2B companies that target SMBs and enterprise. I don't work or know anything or very little about the self-service SaaS space, right? And let's say when you target SMB, your total addressable market is not as big as when you target, you know, when you are, let's say, MailChimp of SaaS, right? Or, or the Shopify or the Weeks of SaaS, where you can target hundreds of thousands of businesses, but you can still target tens of thousands of companies as an SMB B2B SaaS. Annual contract value is usually between, if you are really stretched and, and short sales cycle, you can be around 2K per year up to, let's say, 50K, best case in SMB space. And then enterprise is everything above that, but longer sales cycle and so on. And here, your total this one market in terms of organization you can target when you're an enterprise is a few thousand accounts but then you bring one account and you get much more mrr or ar than than the smb space so both positioning have their pros and cons and that's the space where i work so let's say at the beginning when you go to market the sales process is important but the most important part really is to have an efficient way to get in front of potential customers and that's the first thing you want to nail and usually how it works is we go very 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 deep into the ideal customer profile 
So the companies, we segment companies based on their business model, based on their size, and then go down to the persona and try to nail what are the KPIs of these people. Because even if it's B2B sales, people in this organization, they will first take the meeting and then eventually buy your product for personal reason. People might pick up the phone because they know you and they have worked with you before. That's kind of the relationship part. They pick up the phone because they know you, but they're not going to buy something because they know you, right? They're going to buy something because if they don't reach their KPIs, uh, they might get fired. They might not get this big fat bonus that they were promised. Or they just want to be the internal hero of the company because that's the KPI that's going to drive the business forward, right? That's why people will buy your product or take a meeting with you initially. So when we go down to the persona level and then we drive the whole outreach around this, what we want to achieve at the very early stage is to be able to describe our customer problem better than they can. And we believe that if we're able to do this, they will automatically believe that we have the solution. So that's the initial goal. So to have a predictable way to generate meetings and then to have a predictable way to get in front of customers and you talk about their problem, be legit, blah, 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 and then close deals. We do this and then when we succeed, we start to scale and specialize more and more the team to make it more predictable. And that's when we arrive in the growth stage where here we have different challenge on basically having a playbook that is heavily documented that we can scale and keep the predictability, right? And then later, once let's say we arrive at a scale-up stage, especially if you're an enterprise space, the challenge will not be to find new list of customers, new list of contacts and all this, because if you have been in the market for two to three years, if you have done a good job and you have a good sales process on a large team, you have most likely 80% of the accounts that you want to target already in some way in your CRM. And the big job here is how do I recycle all these accounts? How do I organize my CRM so I'm able to see how many accounts are being activated each week with some outbound or inbound or both? How many of them can I recycle now with new contacts? And how can I make sure that I leverage all my sales ops to support my team to, again, generate meetings and then make sure that we are on target with the newbies? So that's one part, which is very exciting. And then the other part that I love doing with enterprise is what we call horizontal expansion. So you have those massive queue accounts. So let's say you work with Nestle, Coca-Cola, you name it, EY in, in a few cities around the world, in a few countries. Then what we do is we expand this account horizontally with the same outbound model that we use in outbound, but we put it in customer success, right? Where we have a SDR or BDR team that basically support customer success by just booking meetings with every single office of Coca-Cola around the world, right? And that's what we call the horizontal expansion playbook. So this comes later in the journey. Well, this can also come early, depending on how fast you can deliver value to your customer. But these are, I think, the three main different challenges that you see in the journey. Got it. I think in enterprise sales, usually, you know, it's it's very strongly built on relationships, right? Earlier, it used to be like a lot of whining and dining, going in person, meeting the, you know, key stakeholders and, right. <laughs> and gatekeepers. Yeah. But um, now it's all remote sales. I mean, like for the last one and a half year, everyone is locked down in their, you know, sweet space, sweet home. So how do you see going forward the sales would be in these phases? You know, we've reflected a lot on this. Now it's been more than a year Then you know, Corona happened and the world has changed quite a bit. And I think everybody agreed that this just increased the speed eventually. And a lot of, uh, let's say, large enterprise deals where you had to go and meet and wind the guy and dine the guy. And, and I love this part, right? But you don't do this anymore. But eventually you have shorter meetings to move stuff. Before that, with enterprise, they will wait to meet you at a conference to start talking about a topic. And there will be, <laughs> I don't know how many hours of, of dining and maybe 30 minute max of business talks right in between. And now we just have these shorter meetings. And then eventually, of course, you're probably still going to meet these customers eventually when everything opens up. But there will be this culture of you know moving faster already. 
uh, where you can still meet up and, and do this relationship building. But when you know short topics needs to be addressed, we can have a 50 minute call. So it'll be all virtual calls as well and occasional meeting up in the coming years if that trend still follows on. Probably, probably. And, and I think people still miss social interaction, right? So like I, yesterday, I went to a, a drive-in concert. I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> drive-in concert in pandemic times. Yeah, yeah. That was weird. <laughs> but yeah, so I think we miss, we miss. And I think people will still do this whining and dining, but it will still move faster. JB. For startups, it's all about metrics, right? It's all about metrics and data. How do you use data for your sales funnel or to improve your sales funnel? Yeah, very, very, very good question. So there is three types of data. You have the data that is related to the funnel stages, you know, simple deal stage, contact stage, account stage, and so on. Um, so you can do simple dashboard. Most of the uh, sales organizations have this in place. Uh, then you have the activities data. It sounds super simple, but many organizations forget to track that Activities has an impact on your funnel. So that's the second layer, right? So you want to make sure that there is a consistent level of activities. And in order to give ownership to the different people in your sales team, you need to also have this forecast culture of activities and forecast culture of funnel stages. And this is an open forecast document that we usually use where everybody sees each other forecast, both on activities and funnel stages, according to where they are in the funnel. And then finally, there are some data points that you can have on the account and on the contact in the CRM, because we specialize our team with every single team we work with. We specialize the team that does the lead research for the account and the contact. They are basically incentivized to make sure that the data on the top of the funnel is unified and we classify company against ICP type. We also make sure that we often have size data points, so like number of employees, if it's a, a seed software type of companies that we sell, uh, it could be uh, we will put traffic into brackets with data from similar web if it's e-commerce tool. So we'll have this kind of organized data points. And then for people, we categorize job title into data points. So we'll have the type linked to seniority. So we'll have decision maker, influencer or champion. And then we have expertise. We could also use department. So if you are CMO, you are decision maker marketing in our CRM. And the reason we did that is because when you start doing pie chart on job title, job title are not unified across organizations, so it's all over the place. But when we break down job title into these two data points, later with the same amount of activities, I can tell you that, hey, you did 100 cold call or, or let's say 100 sequence activities to um, 100 companies. And already I can tell you that you have more success with companies from that vertical, that size in that region, when you target people with that expertise and that are influencer. So if you want to get more meetings and still do only 100 cold calls, simply call only this type of companies and only this type of people. And with 100 calls, you will get better results. So this is how we do data-driven sales. So when do you think is it the right time to start with that data-driven sales? Like I just started a company, for example, do I already have to measure all those metrics or can I do it at a later point in time? Well, the, the challenge when you are doing the sales on your own really is that you don't get the clear incentive to have this unified way of entering data on the top of the funnel. And I will agree with that as well, that at the beginning, maybe it's not the most important because this will add steps in your process and maybe not clearly adding value, right? 
to be honest, we can always reverse engineer what works. Uh, so I would say in early stage, maybe it doesn't matter that much. But as soon as you want to start scaling, as soon as you want to start to understand how do we scale the team, that's when you reverse engineer and say, oh, okay, let's categorize this like this and like that. And, and let's make sure that we specialize, you know, some team on some specific verticals for XYZ reason, right? So I think in B2B SaaS sales, usually everything is standardized as well, right? The CRMs are in place and even the lead prospecting is like automated. There's a lot of AI engines that actually, you know, do the prospecting as well. So what's your approach of systemizing a typical sales funnel? I would say 80% is around the customer. And for a simple reason is whether you like it or not in B2B sales, you are not in charge of the buying process. You might influence it. You might use a framework that your prospect is kind of navigating through because you own the framework. But then you're not going to go and accept that meeting yourself, right? So every single stage are around the customer, on the contact object in the CRM. The same for the deal stage. It's not around our sales process. It's around their buying process. Uh, so that's kind of how we systemize the steps. And then we basically classify accounts around ideal customer profile, which is, again, very, very customer-centric. So that's how we do a basically customer-centric sales system in the CRM. Excellent. And my last few questions would be around some of the books that you have been reading and you'd like to recommend to your listeners. I mean, all salespeople read a lot, right? I mean, those conversations come in our day-to-day talks as well. Yeah. So the last book that I really, really enjoy, I'm not too sure if you could say it's a sales book. It's a Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's just amazing how he has put into some simple framework or templates, you know, negotiations techniques that you can use. I find it like really actionable. For example, something that I use very often, not even in sales, but in my interaction with founders, with my partners, with my colleagues, is the three type of yeses, right? So you have the yes that people tell you to get rid of you because they know that if you tell no to them, you are not going to stop talking, right? So they just tell you yes to get rid of you. And that's the type of yes we should avoid in sales at all costs, right? And then you have the yes, I agree, which is important to kind of move on with the conversation. And then there is the yes commitment, which is the yes we want to get in sales. Even from the very beginning, yes, I commit to spend 30 minutes of my time with you, right? And then yes, I commit to have this internal uh, demo, blah, 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 right? And very often when I'm not sure about the type of yes I get, I ask, are you telling me yes for me to shut up? Or are you telling me yes because you agree or you commit, right? So when I'm not sure, I'm trying to label the yes straight. Do you directly ask that to your customer or stakeholder on the face? It, it depends. Customers, it depends, right? You have to feel it, how the conversation went. So depending on if your ICPs are like very informal guys, I love selling to salespeople, right? So, I mean, my other company, we sell to me, right? We sell to the sales director that I'm the persona. So I know how and when we can be cheesy. And I will ask this directly. If I sell to someone with a tie, I'll probably not ask this question, right? But so I think it's very actionable and there is many, many templates that you can use. And then of course, we uh, predictable revenue is our Bible from Aaron Russ. So, I mean, it's a very old one, but if you haven't read that one, this is very, very, very actionable as well in terms of templates. And then to be honest, I'm an endurance addict. So I do, um, you know, uh, running, cycling, uh, swimming, and do Ironman and stuff. I read a lot of books from those ultra runners and people that have just pushed the limits of, of endurance. I can relate this a lot to sales because you set limits for yourself and you compete for yourself. There is never a limit, right? And it's kind of the same when you're in sales. And especially if you work in a system where there is uncapped commission based on the revenue that you bring, it's kind of related, right? The rewards is unlimited. So it's kind of always pushing you to self-develop yourself more, right? So actually, I mean, a lot of books around ultra runnings that are not really uh, related to sales are also inspiring me a lot. 
do you recommend one or two books around this endurance because obviously all entrepreneurs go through that phase right so yeah born to run is is a, is a nice one and really really cool story i like the autobiography of nike founder he is also a runner and talks about how he worked with those athletes and, and, and all that. So those two books are actually good to, good to start on. Born to Run is a book I've recommended to quite a few people and they started running afterwards. Excellent. It was a pleasure talking to you and getting some cool insights from you as well. And we'll hope to, uh, you know, talk again at a later point in time. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you.